We're going to start with a short video from Matthew Brett, who's a former SAR student and has been involved in the student movement in Quebec. He's going to tell us about their successes there uh, via this video. Hello, London. Um, my name is Matthew Brett. I'm a longtime activist. I was involved in the 2012 Quebec student strike and then moved to the UK and had a brief stint at SOAS. So I'm sure there's some friends in the room and some comrades who I would love to be there with in person. And also to the new faces in the room that, that I haven't met, I wish I could be there to meet all of you and be with you on the streets at the free education rally. Uh, amazing work that you're doing and thank you so much for doing it. Um, I think it's uh, absurd and frustrating that the NUS isn't supporting the rally, but there you go. Uh, we can talk about that. Um, I first want to acknowledge that I'm actually speaking from Treaty 1 territories in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, you probably heard a bit about Canada because of the recent terrorist attacks and Russell Brand did a video, so away we exist. Um, the Treaty 1 territory is <coughs> a territory signed, uh, the, the treaties are, are signed between Queen Victoria and Indigenous communities. <coughs> Here, Canada is a colonized uh, nation. Uh, we're engaged in struggles for decolonization and anti-colonialism. And I think that any student movement these days needs to be anti-colonial and anti-imperialist, especially in the UK, given its uh, history of violence and bloodshed and colonialism. So you're doing amazing work there around that already on the anti-war front against British imperialism. Um, and in solidarity with the Palestinians. I think British students are playing a great role in the BDS movement as well, uh, and I support you and your efforts to, uh, to fight Israeli apartheid. <clears throat> um, I'll be very brief in my remarks because I can't be there with you in person, um, but in short, uh, I think that free education is an absolutely achievable and desirable goal, and breaking from neoliberalism is uh, a necessary struggle, um, and a struggle with no shortage of challenges. Um, and what I really want to advocate for is not only the possibility, but I would say the tactical, if not necessity, then certainly viability uh, a student strike in the UK. Uh, go for it. Do it. I think it's possible. I think that you have the infrastructure there to do it. And where the infrastructure doesn't exist, I think there's the capacity to create it. Um, we had an effective student strike in Quebec in 2012. I'm so happy to have been part of that. It was a transformative experience for me. And what it involved is basically voting in general assemblies, democratic general assemblies, at the departmental level. Uh, in the UK, you have one, tend to have one centralized student union um, that sort of runs the show, has general assemblies and so on. That's fine, and we, we have those as well in Quebec, but what we also have is smaller units, departmental units. It, it allows for more direct democracy. People tend to be more rooted in their disciplines as well. Um, so we had these general assemblies that adopted strike mandates across the province and you ended up with thousands of people on strike, tens of thousands of people on strike, holding picket lines outside of their classroom doors for six months. So that means classes just stopped. The institution was shut down. Uh, the university as a factory, the whole system was disrupted. It created a backlog of students. It put immense pressure on the administration and the state as well and the media police, you name it. If we weren't in classroom, we were on the streets. 
and, and we were able to free education by doing that as well. Uh, because we weren't having classes, we had alternative classes out in the streets, often with police uh, just down the road coming toward us and we would make collective decisions about what to do while giving courses, uh, public courses available to anybody that walked by. So it was an amazing, liberating experience and, and when we're talking about free education, uh, we can we can envision alternative models when on strike uh, and when occupying spaces and so on. You have some experience of that from uh, 2010, that, that string of occupation occupations that Millbank triggered. Uh, yeah, occupations are great, <clears throat> and I think that they're important. We should pursue them. And uh, <clears throat> but. In terms of sustained institutional pressure, I do think a student strike is the way to go. Um, now the real question is how can you even achieve and implement a student strike in the UK when your own national union doesn't even support a rally for free education? I, where to begin? Um, <clears throat> those are questions that I think uh, you're best positioned to, to address. I can certainly give my own opinions on that, but uh, and be happy to chat any time. But I, I think there's huge problems there. Uh, that said, you have amazing organizations and grassroots activists that are working either within the NUS or trying to create new institutions and so on outside of it. Uh, both are, are great. <clears throat> um, I will end on the importance of, of broadening the struggle, which you can obviously do very well in the UK, and then also the importance of economic disruption uh, more broadly. I saw a statement from one of your student unions there, uh, uh, distancing itself from the rally because there might be some illegal action and there's risk involved and so on. That's bullshit. Um, the purpose to me of, of a big rally and a student movement is to be disrupted and is to break the law and is to put pressure on those in power, and I would encourage you to, to be disruptive and actually put pressure on those in power uh, and be careful as well, but so know your risk. But, but uh, that's what we're here for, is we're, to, we're, we're, we're out there to, to disrupt things. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm not about to submit a protest route and peacefully follow what those in power would like because screw them, they're the ones that are screwing us over and it's time that we fight back. Um, so on the importance of economic disruption, one of the, the tactics, while the strike that was taking place in Quebec, one of the tactics that we pursued were also naïf action, um, or economic disruptions. There was a week of economic disruptions. So there were uh, blockades of banks, blockades of uh, ports and industry, uh, making connections with uh, global capitalism and trying to confront the system as a whole, colonialism as well. Um, a strong feminist presence, so uh, going to retail outlets that has sexist advertising and so on, occupations, you name it. Those economic disruptions were very important. They, they shook the system, uh, placed pressure on those in power, <clears throat> and I, I think that ought to be pursued and, and is being pursued in the UK and in the student movement there as well. And lastly, the thing I want to stress is that what made the strike so successful is that it brought in from a student movement to a social movement. And I think that there are parallels with what's happening in Quebec and the UK in terms of the austerity agenda uh, and neoliberalism more broadly. Um, what we saw 
was, for example, small businesses closing whenever there was strike action so that the staff could join students on the street, um, banners in the windows of shop fronts, senior citizens' homes with flags outside of their uh, houses, the, the citizens coming out onto the street, the senior citizens coming out on the street and joining us, uh, homeless people, it really became a broad social movement. Uh, and, and I think that can be done in the UK by linking it to cuts and privatization in other sectors and trying to build that solidarity with, with active and militant sectors of society. Some of the trade unions won't be that helpful, um, but there are some rank and file activists who will. Um, and there are some grassroots groups who will jump on board. There are others who may slow the process down. So it's just knowing where your allies are in that spectrum. So I'll end on that note, have an amazing march, um, be disruptive, be confrontational, be, uh, have conviction in the goals of free education and, and pursue that. I think that a student strike in the UK ought to be pursued. Uh, students in Quebec are going for what a general, broad student general strike in 2015. There's uh, no shortage of problems there, but uh, they're working on it as best that they can, just as you are. Um, so I send you my solidarity from Treaty 1 Territories and uh, enjoy the strike and I hope to see all of you soon and join you on the street sometime. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, so now I'll introduce our next uh, speaker, who's Mira. <laughs> Mira Sabratna, who's a lecturer in international relations here at SOAS, uh, is on the SOAS UCU executive um, and is involved in the Democratize SOAS campaign as well. So yes, thank you, Mira. Thanks guys, uh, thank you very much to Georgie and to David for inviting me to share some thoughts with you. I'm gonna talk about uh, Democratized SOAS campaign as campaign rather as part of a broader series of movements against what we call the neoliberal university. Um, and I think one of the things that came out really strongly from what Matt was saying, um, or at least from the experience of Quebec, is that we've got to know what you're fighting for, right? In Quebec, there's a very clear message, a very unifying position, right? Free education, no fees. Um, but I think as, as, as valuable and important a uh, objective that is, the fight against the neoliberal university has to take many fronts because neoliberalism is in the university in multiple different ways. So one of the things uh, I want to do uh, in the talk is just outline some of the ways in which neoliberalism is in the university and how fighting against that requires us to be active on multiple fronts uh, simultaneously. Okay, what is neoliberalism in higher education? I mean, at a broad level, it's the idea that education and higher education is for the market, right? It's for the economy. The purpose the university's existing is in order to generate a more productive workforce, to teach you transferable skills, to make uh, jobs, you know, um, uh, more prevalent in the British economy. And it takes place with a, a broader schema of national competition, right? We must outperform the Germans, we must outperform... Uh, the French in terms of a highly skilled workforce and so in terms of the discourse around what university education is for the emphasis over the last 20 years has been on producing an economically more productive population so that's the general background in concrete terms this means that students also become consumers right there's a market inside university not <coughs> urban education 
Not only is education for the market, but within education there is also a market. Within that, students are consumers, uh, initially introduced through the mechanism of fees, so making you kind of token customers, as it was when the fees represented a small part of the, the teaching allocation. Now the totalization of fees and the withdrawal of the teaching grant means that universities are almost entirely dependent, depending on the subject, on uh, student fees to pay their income, right? This gives students, if you like, customer service uh, relationships with their universities. SOAS has just introduced very proudly a new CRM system, that is a customer relations management system, uh, which is in in designed to manage the uh, process from application through to arrival. So you all know as well that students are, uh, students are consumers by virtue of your fees. Now you're also uh, debt consumers by virtue of your student loans. So you will have your loans uh, currently provided by the government, possibly sold off to the private purse thereafter, right? So you're fully financialized as, as a condition of your entry into the higher education system. So that's one side, that's one side that students as consumers. The other side is that universities, of course, are businesses, right? Universities must attend by virtue of uh, higher education regulations to their surpluses. That means that universities in the UK are required to make an annual surplus of between, uh, of at least three to five percent in order to be seen as sustainable. These statistics are reported annually to the higher education statistics authority. They must uh, maintain and cap staff costs as a pr uh, proportion of the university budgets, right? This is a national policy uh, set by Hefke. And so you're not allowed to pay your staff much more than you'd want unless you can raise extra cash through charging your cons uh, consumers or your students more. So universities are businesses, their incomes are volatile, they've got to cap staff costs, they've got to generate an operating <coughs> surplus. Now, all of that is assured through a government uh, system of quality assurance, both in terms of what kinds of things can count as degrees, but also what kinds of financial situation you can be in. So uh, it's a boring detail, but neoliberalism is unfortunately very much about the boring details. Okay? Um, it's, it's a boring detail, but it's about uh, the ways in which universities become accredited. Now, it's interesting that they introduced this system of accreditation of degrees. Why? Because it opens the door for private sector enterprises, not kind of uh, not-for-profit education organizations, but private sector organizations to provide education. So we see, saw a big drive during Willits's tenure to increase the number of private providers in the market, to cross-subsidize them from the state through the system of uh, giving student loans to people who wanted to pay those private providers, and then having to deal with the actually the, the problems that have been associated with that. So the system of quality assurance at a national level is designed to ensure that more people enter the market, the universities are competitive. Within the <coughs> university, what has this meant for how universities are governed? Again, it's in the devil is in the boring details, the kind of mundane regulations. Not many people had an uproar when Charters and standing orders within many universities were marginally edited to decrease academic control over a number of issues, increase managerial and executive oversight of those issues, increase the role of lay boards and outsiders in deciding whether uh, education was functioning. What we have now in the UK in particular is a system where many academics have completely lost any kind of sovereignty or control over their institutions. This is a very uneven process, but many senates have been replaced with academic boards, uh, and those academic boards have been hollowed out of actual working academics and replaced with uh, university managers. 
Their decisions are completely um, un, uh, their decisions are completely unaccountable to the academics that they work for, and they're also uh, un, un, unrepresentative of those academics. <coughs> Finally, in terms of what neoliberalism concretely means in the university, it means the casualization of labor, and we've got. Uh, a very strong anti-casualisation campaign in, in the university, part of the Fractional for Fair Play uh, campaign, also the Justice for Cleaners campaign. But as part of what neoliberalism looks like, it means more and more of your staff go into fractional contracts, more and more of them are temporary, more and more of them are dependent on uh, the actual income or what managers feel like for that year in order to be re-employed. Okay. So across the board, we can see that neoliberalism's tendrils, if you like, are pervasive in the education sector. And this is the situation that we're presented when they say, oh no, but there's no alternative. All of this is objective, right? These are the objective conditions that we work in. These are strategic necessities inside the university. These are political necessities in the country <coughs> as a whole because of the need for austerity, the need to cut budgets. In terms of what we can do, um, I think we need to contest the broad picture, the idea that all of this is an objective necessity, right? This is manifestly not true. These are all political choices made by politicians, by university managers, even by academics themselves and by students themselves about how they conduct themselves and the choices they make about how they participate in the education system. What can we see instead of this neoliberal uh, system of, of governance and of, and of uh, regulation in, in the university? So the Democratise Science campaign is specifically about challenging uh, the diminution of academic control and academic freedom within the university and uh, trying to expose the radical control now which the executive powers in the university have over what happens at SOAS, right? The old Senate was abolished some time ago, so the idea that you as an academic could show up and discuss matters of strategic importance and vote on them. That all went some time ago. We now have an academic board, which was supposed to represent the academics, which is almost entirely composed of managerial appointees. We don't have any access to the agenda. We don't have any access to the papers. Uh, the Democratized Science campaign uh, generated um, through this understanding and also through the everyday experiences of powerless amongst academics and amongst students uh, who didn't know what was going on inside SOAS, right? When a decision was made to cut this or that or to institute this or that policy, uh, it was never really understood where it came from. Eventually, through some analysis and through some excellent work by the Student Union, uh, David in particular, uh, looking at these issues of academic governance, we came to an understanding that actually it didn't have to be this way. It's not that regulations determine that the management must control uh, affairs. It's actually something which is within our power to contest. So what did we do? We mobilised our governing body, uh, we mobilised with the students, we got signatures on an open letter, we said we don't want to be governed this way, right? This, uh, this system of governance is full of holes, we demand better. And we're currently kind of working uh, through an academic board working group, which they have, we've circulated a paper, and we're mobilising on issues to try and make people aware that the everyday bullshit that they face is not just, you know, their own problem. It's not just because they're not working hard enough and it's not just because um, you know, there's budget cuts and constraints. 
What we try to make people conscious and aware of is the fact that actually academic uh, institutions don't have to be run this way, they've not been run this way in the past, they don't have to be run this way in the future, and that the everyday bullshit of trying to deal with policies that are dropped out of the ground and ideas that are dropped out of the management should actually be contested, right? We should be discussing these, we should have input into these situations. Okay, uh, so I'm going on quite a lot. <laughs> So the Democratize SOAS campaign in, in its current sense and focusing on the university governance is trying to make SOAS a place which is accountable, which is transparent, which actually puts into practice the values that it puts on the, you know, on the marketing materials about inclusiveness and, uh, and you know, um, diversity. We're trying to get that to be an actuality. And there is space for that and I hope that we'll achieve something uh, in that respect. More broadly, though, we need a vision for free education nationally, right? It's not enough to fight this within particular institutions, even though that spreads, right? It's not enough to fight it on one issue, which is fees, and then another issue, which is academic boards. We need an overall vision of the role that education is supposed to play in a society, right? In a democratic society, in an open society where one can be critical. Uh, and that's what I hope, um, you know, the, the movement on, on Wednesday and the broader movement within education is going to do. And for my part, um, the role that university is supposed to play in society is, is giving it a space to reflect on itself, right? To critique what is going on in government. It gives us the tools to analyze you know, the economics of a situation, to analyze the historical claims that people make, to analyze the scientific claims that people claim to have made, right? It's our space for critique, and we need to protect it from being completely overwhelmed by market rationales, through an, uh, a system which pits us against each other as consumers and providers. Uh, we need to refuse these relationships in our everyday practice as teachers and students, but also as a political <coughs> movement. So now our next speaker is Ariana, who was a co-president in the Students' Union uh, two years ago. Uh, so thank you, Ari. Um, yeah, hey, uh, hi everyone. Um, my name is uh, Ariana, and as Georgie said, I used to be um, co-president in the union um, a couple of years back when the role was called something like Welfare and Education. Uh, before everything changed, and now I don't even recognize my own students' union anymore. It's also weird. But anyway, I think I think I'm here because Georgie thought, uh, Georgie and David thought it may be helpful to have someone that had been involved uh, in the past had been around for a while, was around in 2010, to kind of give a little bit of perspective about how the student movement has evolved over the last, uh, you know, four or five years, how things have changed, what has stayed the same, and maybe what we can learn from some of the experiences of, uh, of fighting and uh, losing, but maybe not completely losing in 2010, right? Um, so that's what I'm, what I'm going to try to do with the caveat that I, am, I haven't actually been at SARS for like a couple of years, so you know, maybe some of my perspectives are a bit um, out of date, and uh, so yeah, please correct me if I'm just talking um, crap. But, you know, so I, I imagine many of you may or may not have been around in, uh, in 2010 when, uh, you know, like everything kicked off with the tripling of the uh, of tuition fees, of course, that was not a decision that came out of nowhere. Of course, like top-up fees were introduced, like by the Labour government, already at the end of the 90s, and then you know they were increased at the beginning of the 2000s. But I think. 
before 2010, in a way, like the issue of higher education funding had kind of like fallen by the wayside a little bit, and there wasn't that much public attention around, you know, what, you know, who funded education, who paid for education. There was sort of like this status quo that was kind of going on, kind of unchallenged. No one apart from like a bunch of radical leftists really talked about free education, and it wasn't until like the Lib Dem Conservative Coalition came into power that really like the, the issue was kind of like put back at the center of everyone's concerns with the proposal to completely basically take out any government uh, involvement in like from you know funding <laughs> of teaching universities and put completely um, the financial burden on students as as individuals and as consumers and as part of that a move towards a completely marketized system in which universities were forced to compete with each other as Mira had explained as explained really well to kind of uh, win those students and brought them all in with them and uh, therefore completely changing the logic of the system from one in which you know uh, questions of uh, academic value and production of knowledge kind of were at least uh, still present in the governance of universities to one in which the one and only concern <coughs> for university managers was uh, the kind of pro uh, protection and reproduction of, of profit right um, and so of course like 2010 happened and I think it was an incredibly you know life-changing moment for all of us that were around at the time. For the first time, feeling that we were part of a, of a movement that was like so much bigger than the individualized struggles that were going on just in individual universities, you know? It's like, for the first time, there was, we were like confronted with an issue that was, that was massive and that it appeared, uh, if not winnable, at least like we could have a fight on a terrain that was concrete. And I think that created, opened up a space for, for collective action that none of us that had been, you know, in, in, involved in the UK student movement for a while had ever felt before, right? That like, we were all kind of like faced with this, with this massive thing which was like going to change the course of higher education forever and, and that, you know, well, maybe we can like do something about this. And, and it was incredible. Like it, it literally, you know, I don't want to like fetishize it because it was also like incredibly hard and, and and, and, you know, really depressing and, and like, you know, there was like so much police violence and so much repression within universities and, but, but I think it was a sense of, of collective potentiality which we had never experienced before. And then, and then, and there was a hook, a hook to fight for and I think maybe that's what we felt for a bit too much is that when we lost that fight, that very specific fight from the, you know, the movement from 3,000 pound tuition fees to 9,000 pounds. And then, and then we lost that, and then we got beaten up, and, and you know, people were sent to hospital, like, from Parliament Square, and then we're like, fuck, like, we've lost that, and, and what next? And I think we had a sort of, almost like a collective calm down, and a failure of our collective imagination to, to think of what was next, because we had lost that, that hook, and, and then, you know, as kind of falling victim of some of the short-termism that the UK student movement sometimes has, right? Of thinking like, oh, if we don't have like an immediate vote in parliament that we can, you know, fight and mobilize around, then it's not worth it because, because people only reason in like four months time spans in, in their minds and, and anything beyond that, oh, you know, like the people with the essays, like, don't bother them. And, and, if, and, if, and if it's not something that, you know, they can see as affecting them directly, but even just, you know, their younger brothers are no, people are not going to bother, right? And so I think what happened in the year after that, and, the, you know, the couple of years after that was that there was a sort of, like, lack of, of overall vision of, like, what what was next? And I think in in places like SARS and in lots of other universities, that was, like, one kind of, like, probably like the most creative part of of the movement started cropping up, you know, like this con starting like connecting the dots between 
the big picture that maybe it seemed like we had lost, you know, the big battle, the battle around funding and about like the sticker price of education, and kind of trying to understand how that big change was was having consequences on the ground, as Mira described, in the way our education is organized, in the way decisions, small and big, were taken within universities, in the way our staff, be it the cleaners or the people running the canteen or our academics, were being treated, right? And and I think that it's something that has really happened to an extent that, that I don't think was present in any way before 2010, of like really like connecting the dots and trying to understand that neoliberalism takes many different faces and it's not just the issue of funding and how much education costs, but that it, it has to do with, with the way in which, in which universities at sites of, of production, not only of knowledge, but also of economic values are, are organized, right? And, um, and I think that's something that is really inspiring that has happened since, since 2010. And it's happened in, you know, I think here at SARS quite a lot, in may, maybe other places not quite so much, but I think for the first time there's been a sort of politicization of the issue of, uh, of governance, of the issue of democracy within the classroom, within the university, um, of the issue of working conditions and capitalization. And I think that's really important. And that's one of, of, the, of the things that, you know, I think we can take from, from the experience of like, you know, the last three and four years and, and really like kind of bring, bring forward. But I think there's like many more, that, much more that, that needs to happen. Like if we really want to kind of like turn the tide around and now that we started connecting the dots, actually start posing a sort of big picture question again and move beyond the individualized struggles that we have within, within our own individual institution and, and, and start posing, you know, like a bigger narrative. And I think, it's kind of exciting to be here like at the eve of like a big national demonstration that will hopefully be like the biggest that we've had since 2010 that has come off the labor of like you know a bunch of incredibly dedicated activists with no support from the national union of students that should have been there to support them and instead of like scabbed on us like time and time again before right it's really inspiring to be here because i think for the first time since maybe 2010 there is a, a feeling that maybe we are starting to fight not just for like the next little issue that the thing that might be winnable the thing that may be realistic that is that is doable but the thing that we want even if even if it may not be quite you know so immediately achievable achievable as as it was in 2010 there isn't a direct hook because you know if you believe that the general election is a hook around which we can win then you know we're all like that's, that's a total illusion like free education is not going to come from a Labour government, even if the Labour government was to come into power, is not going to come from sitting with our vice-chancellors and convincing <laughs> them that, you know, free education really is nice. It's not going to come from any of that. It's going to come from struggles, right? And, 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 and struggle starts on the street, and start, struggles start when, when we start overcoming that sense of power, and it's like, oh, you know, there's nothing to mobilize around, and actually just saying, you know what, like, we're going to take back the power to, to imagine. And, and to imagine that, that, that something different is, is possible and that, and that we, can, we can take our collective powers as much as, as explained like they managed to do in, uh, in Quebec and really do something with that. And, uh, and you know, there's no immediate gain at the end, at the end of the line. There's, not, there's nothing that's going to change on Thursday, like the day after the demo. There's nothing that's going to change probably in the next five months. But, <coughs> but you've got to start from somewhere. And so I think like, there's two things that really need to happen as we take the struggle forward and we start collectively to like, imagine things big again. And first, first of all, is like, something that maybe appears minor, but it's very dear to my heart. And it's like, move the conversation forward from just the focus on like, 
tuition fees uh, for higher education students uh, that from the UK and the EU. And first of all, start talking about our international students, like brothers and sisters who are like, you know, complete, completely treated as cash cows to prop up our marketized failing <coughs> British higher education systems uh, and are completely left out of, uh, of the discourse around, around tuition fees. Uh, for, for UK and EU home students, and actually start recognizing how you know their you know the, the complete you know criminalization that to which they are subject on part of uh, like immigration border forces uh, and uh, the complete like you know just just the, the perfect cash cows for for institutions is, is shameful and should be challenged. And we need to bring their struggle in the fold of our movement. Uh, <coughs> we can't just keep talking about about the sticker price of what a, a home, you know, how, about what a degree costs for a UK home student. And then the second, the second one is actually just stop talking about higher education and broaden our focus to education as a whole. Because, because I think what we have done too much in the past, and then it also like opens up to like tons of attacks from the. The, the right-wing press is that there is this, con you know, this idea that like really higher education is like a concern of like privileged middle-class students that don't don't, don't want to pay for for the privilege that they are granted to give to higher to get into higher education. And actually, we should say that our fight is not one for, for you know, because we want our privilege for free, but because we want the dismantlement of all privilege and we want the dismantlement of all those barriers that operate in the education system from primary school onwards in this country and that put up barriers after barriers and perpetuate like class-based social disadvantage and that we want to like get rid of all of that shit and start fighting alongside like school students and epi students and young unemployed people that maybe are not even gonna set foot into a university ever but are gonna be sent on unpaid work experience to earn their unemployment benefits and you know like all of this we need, we need to broaden out and like actually just stop taking this sort of uh, you know individualized or just siloed approach and stop being a student movement and start being a, a social movement. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not very easy, right? But, um, <laughs> but, but I think like, if there's anything that, that historical experience, historical, yeah, from the last uh, five years shows us is that, is that we know where, where we've got it wrong um, by being too focused on, on ourselves. And now, and now we need to kind of like actually start, start thinking big again and, and reaching out. And I think it, it can be done, and I mean, I've been terribly disillusioned myself, and I almost stopped doing student politics, and now actually, like, you know what? Like, there's still a point, and uh, and uh, but yeah, we gotta do it together, and it's only if we get get back that sense of like collective imagining that that, that we can do it. So, so yeah, you know, like show up on Wednesday, but that's only the start, and and then yeah, we take it from there. <laughs>
famous example would be the Vietnam War protests, which didn't, in America didn't really slow down the end of the Vietnam War, but you know, for 30, 40 years after that, the US never did a major land war because they were afraid of what would happen at home. Um, and even little things, when you have a squat, I mean, we always knew in America that the police will never actually allow you to successfully win a battle over a squad. If they decide to kick out a squad, you know, you will lose. But the degree to which you make it you know, nightmarish for them and fight for tooth and nail for every inch of that squad is the degree to which you're protecting the next squad they might have otherwise gone after. Um, so you're always, nuclear movement, the same thing, you know, like if you try to shut down a nuclear power plant, they'll never shut down that nuclear power plant. But um, in fact, they succeeded in making them cancel all the other nuclear power plants. So, so the payoff often comes later, and I think that's really the case here with 2010. They weren't going to give in on the specific issue that um, was being contested, but we changed the field, and, and I think that we're right now in a position to harvest a lot of what people um, achieved then. And I think the most important thing to think about when we think about what happened in 2010 is this has nothing to do with economics. Uh, it's entirely a political move, and it's a political move against the possibility of alternative values to a system that people recognized had been discredited and was in the process of failing. So we are, we are confronting a system that basically lost the ideological game and knows it, and this is sort of lashing out nihilistically to, to, to uh, postpone the inevitable. I really believe this to be the case. If you look at it historically, there are two cycles of post-war capitalism. Um, there's the Keynesian cycle from basically after World War II to the mid-70s, you could say, where essentially uh, they, the line was to the, uh, to the relatively privileged members, the white, oh, white working class in North Atlantic countries, they basically said, all right, look, you guys agree not to become commies, we'll give you welfare states, we'll tie economic rights to citizenship rights, um, we'll have free education, so forth and so on. And, um, most social struggles up until the 70s were struggles of inclusion, more and more people wanting in on the deal, um, whether a civil rights movement in America, minorities, uh, various factions in the third world, feminist, feminism, um, entire half the population who'd basically been left out of this deal wanting in. And essentially the system cracked because capitalism doesn't really work that way. You can't give a good deal to everyone. Um, that kind of deal that was offered to um, industrial white working classes in the 50s and 60s. Um, and it cracked, and, and you know we had this moment of financial crisis, ecological crisis, everybody was seeing the end of the world. And they came out of a, a, a new dispensation. They basically said, okay, everybody can have citizens' rights because it'll have no economic uh, implications. You know, productivity is no longer tied to wages, but everybody can have credit. Um, so you had this um, you know, essentially regime of, of credit-based capitalism um, where Everybody had like their personalized retirement accounts, um, mortgage, using mortgages as, um, as ATM machines, as they put it. Um, Microcredit was going to save the third world, and you know it led to yet another um, similar crisis of inclusion, where they were starting to extend mortgages to people who were never actually, you know, they never seriously intended um, to let have the houses. Um, the whole thing crashes in 2008, and I think that there was we haven't realized just the degree to which 2008 really did discredit that entire operation. Um, 
It's just huge crash, and it's just like in the 70s. You know, you have the financial crisis, the oil shock, the visions of ecological catastrophe, you know, which are real, but, but still, it all comes, that's what happens when the system falls apart and they're going to create something new. But, you know, they're, what they're essentially doing is fighting a desperate rear guard action against what that new thing is going to be. It's still up for grabs. We don't know. I mean, in the 70s, we didn't know for a while, long time, too. Uh, but it's significant that the first move they do in this country after 2008 is basically go out after the education system. You think about it, it's crazy, right? Because you know what we found in 2008 was that everything we've been told, essentially that there are these guys, they're not very nice, they're kind of, they're kind of bastards actually, but you know, they're really smart, they're the only people who really know how to run an economy. Um, just trust them, let these guys, you, you don't understand, you know, that, um, let, let them run things. Um, it's, it's really the only way it's going to work. And we discovered actually these guys, like, not only are they, you know, venal, they're completely incompetent. They crashed the world economy. They, they don't understand the value of their own financial instruments. They had to be, you know, go crying to the government to bail them out. Um, so essentially, the whole line markets don't regulate themselves. These guys don't know what they're doing. You know, every ideological line we've been told turned out to be an absolute lie. It was exposed to be an absolute lie. So what's their reaction? They try to privatize the education system. I mean, as an economic measure, that's crazy, right? Because the education system had been sort of bumping along, doing its job fairly well. Um, the financial system had done its job so disastrously that it you know, almost destroyed the entire world economy. The logical thing under such circumstances would be to say, gee, I guess we should run the financial system a little bit more like the educational system. You know, instead they said, no, let's do it the other way around. <laughs> let's run the educational system more like the financial system that just did so well. Um, so, you know, clearly this can only be understood as a political move. Essentially what they said was, um, we've been completely discredited. Um, where is the most likely place that alternative values, ideas, and visions of how things might be run might come out of? Let's destroy it. <laughs> and literally that's what they did. I mean, that's us, right? Um, so, so the thing is, how can one destroy any radical potential in the university system, which historically is where radical ideas tend to emerge from. Not usually from the system itself, but from its margin because people were involved in it. Um, and I don't know if people remember the Brown Report, which happened right before 2010. Essentially, you know, it's, it, you can see, and this is what's so fascinating about what happened here. I come from America. Um, where there's all these debates about student debt. And like, if you say that it's a conspiracy to like destroy the imagination of you, people think you're psycho, right? Um, and oh, this is all very complicated economic reasons that universities, right, the prices raise and these sort of uh, lending things happen. And the idea that anybody sort of arranged this, and that's crazy talk. But you all think they both as a space alien. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, here, like, they did it just explicitly. They said, okay, let's get everybody into debt. Let's raise tuition fees and, and you know, and create student debt. Um, all the things that, that you know, we suspected they were doing in America, they just absolutely overtly did here. Um, and, um, and it's obvious why. And this is what I was saying, the Brown Report. The Brown, they, they issued this report basically assuming that nobody ever goes to university for any other reason than to further their own you know, life economic advantage. That everybody's a calculating bastard who doesn't care about anything you know, um, about money. You know, basically they're projecting. You know, um, they couldn't imagine anyone wasn't like that. And um, 
Uh, you know, this is utterly untrue of what people were doing at the time. And essentially they said, what mechanism can we come up with to force people to actually act like that? Um, and that's what student debt is all about. Um, it's, uh, debt has operated historically like this uh, for, for hundreds if not thousands of years. Um, I always think of it as um, an analogy to monster movies is the best way to understand what debt is really about. It's about turning you into a capitalist, um, but, but a kind of pathetic diminished version of the capitalist. Um, you know, think about vampires or all the scariest monsters you see in monster movies. They're not just ones that kill you, they're ones that make turn you into themselves. So, you know, a vampire or a werewolf or a zombie, you know, you're going to become one of them. That's like the scariest thing. And in a way, that's what, what, what forced indebtedness does. It doesn't just, you know, it turns you into a capitalist. It puts you in a situation where you have to look at the world like a financier, whether you like it or not. Um, and, and not only that, you don't even get to be like the cool count vampire. You get to be one of the pathetic minions. You know, you're a capitalist, you're a capitalist with no capital. What could be worse than that? And, um, so essentially, this was the, the calculating scheme these guys did. And, and to me, this is one of the greatest acts of barbarism in world history. It was inspired by Pierre Bourdieu. Before he died, he became very political in the um, anti-neoliberal movements of his day. And he pointed that out. That, you know, the people that were fighting are essentially barbarians. Um, you know, things like the welfare state is one of the greatest historical achievements of human civilization. And these guys are like hundreds and thousands of vandals just destroying it for the sake of, of pillage, basically, you know. Um, because, and, and I actually said that to like, a telegraph reporter at Millbank. Um, I remember this because, you know, it was a great day. I still actually have glass that I collected from Millbank. I making into jewelry. Um, so, so I was wandering around, and there was a reporter, and I thought, what the hell? Um, <laughs> I talked to her, and I said, um, you know, um, they're going to represent us as barbarians because, you know, we broke some windows. Um, of course, window breaking is a very long and deep historical tradition. It's a form of political expression here in the UK. We could talk about that, but I won't. Um, but, you know, they're going to represent us as barbarians. But, you know, think about that term, the barbarians. And, uh, I mean, you know, um, they don't call the Goths and the Huns and the Vandals barbarians because they broke stuff, and the Romans broke stuff all the time. You know? <laughs> um, they, they called them that because they had no interest in, in, in the art, the philosophy, the culture, the civilization uh, of the empire as values in itself. All they cared about was money and power, right? Well, who are the barbarians here? You know? I mean, we're, we're facing people who not only only care about money and power, have no interest in the actual ongoing values, um, which most people draws most people to education, um, but are trying to force us to become barbarians as well. So um, that's what this is, is basically about. But I, I think that, that we're at a point where that project really has failed. Um, and, and this is why I think this is a very hopeful moment. We can harvest a lot of what was achieved in 2010. Um, I think that, you know, I went straight from the movement, social movements of 2010 here to New York and sabbatical. I got involved in Occupy Wall Street, uh, which was very much inspired by the occupations that had happened before in a lot of ways. And that, in turn, had enormous repercussions, which I think, um, especially on the people running the system, it's been really interesting that I have observed over the last few years which is there's been an increasing cleavage between the politicians. I mean, the politicians are a lost cause. These guys are completely bought and sold. Um, and, and it's pretty hopeless to go through them. And this gives us a sense that there's, there's no way to really um, change anybody's minds. But there's a huge cleavage right now between those guys and the people who are actually running, you know, the administrators, people like, say, the Bank of England who actually have to run the system uh, and, and you know, are, are increasingly realizing that the terms in which we are forced to talk 
you know, that there's only so much money that austerity is necessary because we have, you know, these debt is bad. Well, these guys know perfectly well that, like, all governments have national debt. They have to have a national debt because that's where money comes from. You know, that money in your pocket is actually circulating national debt. If there was no national debt, there, there wouldn't be any money. Um, so, so the entire terms in which we talk about this stuff and politicians talk about it is topsy-turvy, it's nonsense. And, and increasingly, the people who are in the system realize this, that the entire excuse for not having a free education system, for, uh, for austerity in general, is just bullshit. I mean, and, and, and you know, I, I've been talking to a lot of these guys. And, well, first of all, if they're talking to me at all, you know they know they're in trouble, right? Um, um, and, and they're basically going, sitting around saying, okay, you're right, neoliberalism is, is, is kind of full of shit, it didn't really work. <laughs> it's, it's certainly had its historical run. It's, it's, it, um, what's the next thing? That's, I mean, that's what people are asking all over the place, and, and that's where we come in. The war on education was a war against anybody being able to come up with the next thing, but of course we're going to do it eventually. And this is precisely where it's going to come out of. It's going to come out of movements like this, and it's going to come out of people like this. So I, I think that the doors are really open right now uh, for us for us to change the way the entire system works. And now our final speaker is Farwa from the Fractionals for Fair Play campaign. She's one of the Fractionals reps on the SARS-UCU executive. <laughs> Um, hi everyone, so um, you can see the red shirts. Can the fractionals please wave from where they're sitting? Okay, so there's a lot of us here. Um, so we are, uh, the Fractionals for Fair Play campaign is a campaign of PhD students and um, fractional teaching staff at SOAS. We make up 50% of the teaching staff at SOAS, however we are not paid um, um, a salary which is similar to permanent stuff. Um, just to give you an idea, um, our salaries, well, our salary, salary really is a fraction of the already unsustainable um, salary of teaching staff. So something like 5,000 a year, which amounts to 300 to 400 pounds a month. Um, and you can imagine this is really, um, you know, I mean, I don't know if Burger King or McDonald's pays the same. Nobody should get the salary, basically. So what do we do about this? Last year, we decided to organize. Um, we decided we've had enough. Uh, so a bunch of us got together, um, and we basically tried to negotiate with the university. That did not uh, take us very far. So we held an illegal marking boycott. Um, a result of that um, was that it led to an acceptance that, yes, we exist, and you know, we, are, we, are, that, you know, we are at SOAS, and we matter. So um, eventually, uh, we were we were told we were given several offers and an offer to uh, have better working co uh, contracts, comparatively better um, contracts. But they did not justify our labor. However, the university went ahead and unilaterally imposed those contracts, which means that right now we are working under protest. Um, since we started, we've had. Um, a lot of successes in terms of being recognized. We are also part of UCU, which is the uh, academic union at um, representing us. That means we have some form of legal representation, but we also have trouble in the sense that we have to negotiate with the union and try to strengthen it or, or to kind of um, make them accept that our demands are, 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 are fair and you know they, we have to take it forward. Um, in terms of 
difficulties with the union, we are currently uh, in a situation where one of the fractional reps has been um, effectively barred from representing the campaign because his contract was not renewed. So, I mean, there's been finding this this really hard case where we're trying to say if it's victimization or non-renewal of contract. So we're stuck with this legal jargon. It's very hard to establish that, as we all know. So the union's mandate to protect vulnerable members is is you know is something that we we are forcing them to accept. On the other hand, what what's happening is that we are um, becoming more horizontal. Um, 5th of November was the day of anti-casualization, according to UCU, and we held a meeting with 14 uh, universities across um, um, UCU, um, sorry, UCL, Goldsmith, Kings, um, I think Workback, and a few others, where we um, realized that all of these conditions that we face are not um, at not just at SOAS, but they're very, they're, you know, they're, they're spread across the board. And which means that now we're um, moving ahead with becoming a national campaign, hopefully. So I think this is a very, very big achievement. Um, why I think our campaign, Fractuals for Fair Play, is important um, and, and relates to the broader issue of education is because we are in a unique position. We are students as well as teachers. So we are recipients of the system and we're trying to um, accommodate our position and, and fight back with the system. However, um, you know, I mean, we are we choose these PhDs because many years or a few years ago we were on the other side. We were paying uh, tuition fees, and we found there was something um, of essence to pursue in in the system of education, and we 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 uh, moved on to these degrees. However, it's very unfair that we teach students who pay nine grand right now, and and we are forced to accept uh, conditions which are you know which are quite horrible actually. So. Um, I think, I mean, how, how to think about it this in a very broader sense, you know, we, yes, yes, we have mobilized and we have organized, but I think the, the principles of the campaign are not simply limited to fighting for uh, better plays or pay or against casualization of staff. It's against, um, it's finding a way to strengthen the, um, you know, the essence of a university. Um, what does, what does it mean to be at SOAS, for example? I think the problem here is, in my view, it's, it's, it relates to two things. First of all, um, there is a huge dissonance between theory and practice. I know all of you at SOAS realize that we read about social movements, read about Marxism, we read these great books and we need these really great uh, professors who inspire us. However, there has to be a move which pushes us to, um, to translate this theory into practice. And I think the only way to do it is to get organized and to become more active. Because the, because the gap is not limited to the reality of our material conditions. You know, it, it goes further. It's ideological and it's political. Um, secondly, I think uh, you know, the, the, the way education it itself has been uh, sort of parceled out to us is very uh, mutually exclusive. So for example, um, you, know, I mean, you could be an expert in game theory, but you would not have heard of Shakespeare. You know, this is, so the idea is that you're not well-rounded, or we're not well-rounded people, and it's a very political thing, because um, it sort of limits you as a person, and it, and it sort of makes activism as this, I don't know, really radical and really unpleasant arena, where it's not. You know, all we have to do is organize, raise our voices, and say we've had enough. Um, I just want to end on, um, 
and note by Lucretius. Yeah, I was reading him last night. He's a Roman philosopher who lived many, many years ago, uh, 500 years before Christ, if I'm not wrong. Um, and he wrote this. Is that true? I just heard 500. Um, okay, it might be 200. Um, and he wrote this. Um, his only work is on the nature of things. Um, it's it's a very beautiful. Um, poem which talks which talks about physics which talks about uh, biology which talks about all kinds of um, the way we see life basically is how he sums it up and his quote which is uh, used by Shakespeare afterwards in King Lear is nothing comes out of nothing and I think this is the message that we should all take home if we do not stand up and fight for what we believe in now I think there would be nothing thank you